0: Welcome to another Pratt on Texas podcast extra. Now, here's your authority on all things Texas, Robert Pratt. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this podcast extra of Pratt on Texas. We visit with our good friend, Dr. Merrill Matthews. He's a resident scholar at the public policy research-based think tank of the Institute for Policy Innovation in the Metroplex of Texas. And um, he's always contributing in the Wall Street Journal and The Hill and other publications. He serves on the Texas Advisory Commission and the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. But more importantly, he's a longtime friend of Proud on Texas and guest. And Dr. Matthews, it's great to have you with us on this podcast extra. You write big pieces that appear in the Journal and in The Hill and other places, but you also do... Uh, what are, we call Policy Bites from your organization, Institute for Policy mm-hmm. Innovation, which is IPI.org. is an in Institute for Policy Innovation, IPI.org, for those of you who want to go and check out uh, Dr. Matthews' Policy Bites and other publications there. I wanted to There, – you've had several in the last 30 days that I really wanted to talk to you about, but with the legislature in session – You know, my focus, I'm the original show that focuses on Texas politics, and so my focus is pretty much on what's going on in the legislature, and we've just been short of time. And so it's great to have you for the podcast extra. I want to start with something that does involve a lot of things we talk about in Texas including uh, Chapter 313, you know, corporate handouts, uh, these uh, subsidies from school districts and stuff to build wind and solar farms. It's all related. Mm-hmm. And you had this on Valentine's Day. What you need to know about government's clean energy subsidies. And I keep pointing out to people there's a real problem. Whether windmills and solar create electricity or not, that's another matter. Okay, they have they can have their place. These people are pricing other people out of the market because they're so heavily subsidized, they literally can pay the grid at times to take electricity. And still, it's not a net debit out of their pocket because they pay less than what they're getting from taxpayers and subsidies, so they make a profit. And of course, that disincentivizes the capital market investors from investing in good old-fashioned you know, uh, power plants, gas-powered, coal-powered, nuclear, whatever. But you talked about these things that were in a Wall Street Journal story and about Biden and the Democrats' giant handout, another Obama-style giant handout. Anybody remember Solyndra and many others liked it that didn't get press? A big handout to these people in this bunch of inflation Causing spending that we've done, and you made you said there were three points in that Wall Street Journal story that needed attention. Tell us all about that.
1: Right. Well, the the Wall Street Journal uh, story was about the Inflation Reduction Act and the three hundred sixty nine billion dollars that uh, Congress is handing out. To various green energy things, the large majority of that's going to corporations. Only about forty billion is actually going to individuals. So the large majority goes to corporations, and and that prompted a piece in the Wall Street Journal. This is a news story where they're talking to. They were looking especially at what they call the clean hydrogen, or green hydrogen, and uh, and some of the, the statements that people were making there, and uh, the the statements are just just sort of highlight what's going on. For instance, here's I'm, here's a quote. So businesses, large and small, are repositioning themselves to try to capture some of the tidal wave of government cash from the new law dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act. And so it it calls it a tidal wave of government cash. And the key point there is uh, businesses, large and small, repositioning themselves. When government's handing out money, businesses don't necessarily have to cater to customers they get to cater to just a handful of
0: bureaucrats or politicians right. to get all this money and it's a, it's a perversion of the marketplace because all of a the sudden they no longer focus on building things or providing services that people are willing to part with their cash to buy at a, up to a profitable level they simply abandon that it's sort of like the government space program stuff we've always had they simply tailor what they do to get these big subsidies because it's a lot easier than going out and trying to sell your product or service to millions of people or even hundreds if you're if you're selling to industry or something. It's much easier just to look at the law and a few politicians and say, oh, if we do this, they'll put a lot of money in our pocket. And of course, it's our money. It's just another, it's just <laughs> an, the, the, the left seems to love this without realizing that all they're doing is taking working class people's money and handing it to, in many cases, very wealthy, well-heeled people. Speaking of repositioning, I mean, you know, Ford and GM
1: are both, uh, trying to move, uh, very quickly to having a large percentage, I think about 50% of their, of their new vehicles, uh, being electric vehicles by, oh, 2025. I think that's, Crazy. I think that's Ford's goal. And, uh, and so, uh, th- but is that because consumers are demanding it? No. No. Less than 1% of the vehicles on the road today, 250 million vehicles on the road today, less than 1% are electric vehicles. So if consumers aren't out there saying, you know, chopping at the bit to get one of these, why are you doing that? Well, it's because what government wants. It's not what
0: consumers are demanding. You know, these are a nice niche thing at the current point of technology for in-city fleets. But, you know, and I realize this is an America. I realize we're an urban country, but where I live, these things are completely and utterly worthless. Uh, you can't even drive to to the, you know, where I live, people normally drive to the mountains of New Mexico just in the evening for the next day. They drive to Dallas, they drive to mm-hmm. a Rangers game. You can't even do this stuff in these vehicles. And certainly not in, in work and farming and stuff like that, where you're driving all over and especially the oil patch, where there are guys driving hundreds, many hundreds of miles per day. Uh, and yet, if you look at the marketing, it's as if, oh my gosh, everybody wants these things and, and there doesn't seem to be this demand. In fact, one of my big bugaboos and I and it makes me angry that Abbott and the state of Texas agreed to this stuff uh, through the, the the Texas transportation outfit um, is taking this federal money to at taxpayer expense build expense build charging stations. If there's a demand for this stuff, these charge and there are some I've been to some Loves truck stops that have installed mm-hmm. some some of these charging stations but if you look around all you need to see is that they're building brand new top of the line in Lubbock we've just gone through a, a building boom of Circle K moving into the market, for example, or as I've always called it, K in the hole. They've moved and built brand new buildings. Uh, Murphy has expanded well beyond their Walmart pad sites and and all of a sudden built a ton of... None of these places have charging stations, which ought to tell people, because remember, their profit comes from people waiting and going inside and buying cigarettes, buying uh, Cokes and stuff like that. That's how the C-store business works. The gas is rarely that profitable. So, hey, if people had to wait longer for a charge, that's even better for the C-stores. And they've all moved into the fresh food area, whether it's, you know, Stripes, which is now 7-Eleven owned or whatever, they would be building these. This is a clear sign that even in new construction, they're not building them, that the market simply isn't there. And yet Ford and GM and other makers are moving third to half their production to this. this. This, this is a perversion of the market that isn't benign. It hurts people. It's going to hurt us all, and it's hurting us by taking our money uh, up front.
1: And and you you hit a key point. The people who are going to Walmart to shop aren't typically the higher income people who can afford the electric vehicles that are out there. And it, it's they're not a knock on electric vehicles. I, I've got I've got friends who uh, have uh, some. That mostly they're Teslas. They like them, but they they drive in the city. They have very short tra- uh, commutes and so forth, and so it works very well for them. And God bless them. That's fine. But that doesn't work for the vast majority of people, especially lower income people who are going to Walmart. Can you? Well, I, can't, imagine? I don't
0: I don't think I love choice and I like the the Teslas, not the little cheaper ones that are still extraordinarily expensive, but the really fancy sports mm-hmm. ones. The problem is government's been state and federal been handing out tax subsidies to people to buy these. That that's that's right. that's wrong. I mean, at every level, this is wrong. Well, Robert, we use tax policy to incentivize things, but you're incentivizing something that's be doing nothing but turning over money To the well-heeled, what happened to the Democrats that always were against the corporate? Well, we know everything is flipped, and they're the party of Wall Street and the corporate oligarchs and titans now. On this piece on uh, clean energy subsidies, though, some of the other quotes that you pointed out that were in that Wall Street Journal story, you said that an analyst talking about green hydrogen said the big risk is throwing out massive subsidies that don't do anything. And that's precisely what we experienced you know, even if you're rah-rah, you want this stuff to come about, you want to change the world because you're on some kind of strange, odd, zealous idea that, you know, fossil fuels, which, by the way, petroleum is part of everything in your life, every single thing. There's almost nothing it's not part of, and we couldn't live without it. We would be in the Stone Ages. But if you really think fossil fuels are bad, and we need to do this, you need to look at the last time we did this, Dr. Matthews, because nothing right, and, came and,
1: of it. And we... We had Solyndra and a number of companies that the federal government invested in or provided grants or or loan guarantees and so forth, and those companies went under. What's happened is the federal government has become, in essence, a venture capitalist where companies that may have good product or not, they come and make a pitch to the government and the government throws billions of dollars, billions of dollars at some of these companies, and they may or may not survive, and when they don't survive, that's just taxpayer money down
0: the drain. We're visiting with Dr. Matthews of the Institute for Policy Innovation, IPI.org is the website where you can read his pieces. We're going to come back in a moment on this Pratt on Texas podcast extra and talk about social security, that third rail of American politics. Stand by, my friends. We return to the Pratt on Texas podcast extra after this break. Welcome back to this podcast extra from Pratton, Texas. We're visiting with a friend, Dr. Merrill Matthews. He's a resident scholar at the Institute for Policy Innovation in the Metroplex, a longtime friend of Pratton, Texas. His work is seen in the Wall Street Journal, The Hill, and many other uh, publications regularly. You can just go look at it directly and join their mailing list at ipi.org. Many of your business people, you've been struggling to get workers into the, and in, in, in many people, that's inflation's killing them. But not being able to get workers is even worse. I actually uh, watched a piece on, uh, read a piece on a media outlet of a guy in farming who farms something that has to be handpicked. He's been in it and grown, built, really successful. And he's having to get out because this year's crop, I think he said three quarters was left in the fields. They literally could not find people to uh, to um, to harvest the crop. And I've talked to many restaurateurs and retailers who are having the exact same problem? It uh, just getting staffing. Doctor Matthews, you wrote a piece: a quick and easy way to grow the workforce. The very—I'm not sure—I completely believe what the Federal Reserve is saying and what that data says. I just I, simply because I've spoken to enough business people, and it—they're it, short in the restaurant business, and they weren't hiring older people before. So you know, I don't know. I just don't know, but give us the premise because i've read it in many places that what the federal reserve bank says about the shortage of people working i tend to think it's we're still paying people not to work and overly generous welfare programs but there must be something to this cuz there's a lot of data behind it
1: and i think there's i think there is something to what the government's been doing in and discouraging people from going to work but essentially what happened with the federal reserve bank the trends happening in retirement and found that the trend of people who are essentially 65 and over or people taking retirement early or uh, just not coming back to the workforce increased during the pandemic, and it has stayed higher. Now, it's not a huge percentage, but we had already seen a growing trend of people the baby uh, retiring because we're in, right. we've got the baby boomers. Right. Right. We already had the the, dem- right the
0: statistical demographic situation where we've been talking about it. You know, those of us been in politics our whole lives know that in the Reagan administration we were talking about this coming swell of takers from Social Security because it's that large post-war population boom retires. And of course, I think that's why much of the Washington class has imported millions of people, albeit illegally across the border, because uh, they know eventually those people, you know, are going to be paying in, whether legally or not or whatever. But uh, I think there was a lot of skullduggery behind the scenes to try to save Social Security that, that way. However, it is true. People have retired. And with all the and with the baby boomers, the, the, the tail end of that group, just getting frustrated and sometimes learning that, hey, you know what? I can live at home pretty comfortably now. You know, it's been so long. Uh, but with the shutdowns, a lot of people have said, I don't want to mess with it anymore. So they're saying what? That this is what's driving the shortage in the labor force.
1: Yeah, they they argue that the the retirement of seniors is the primary factor well, behind the shortage of workers okay, that we have well, out there. Is it a
0: capillary effect then? Is it sucking jobs up to those jobs so that... It's affecting people who were hiring entry-level folks, waiting tables and stuff. I mean, are they getting now a better job because the step above them opened up? Because the step above that opened up? Because see, that's where I don't get it. Because most of the complaints I've seen and I've experienced out in the marketplace and heard from business owners are not those type of jobs. So I. It's, I don't know how they come to that. I guess it's not your data, and we don't need to argue about it. But I'm just pointing out I'm a little – I understand it, but I'm a little skeptical of it. Uh, Right,
1: and there has been a lot of job churn out there as people were looking for other things. And, of course, as you sort of pointed out, when the government was subsidizing everybody with handouts and – tax credits and so forth. Uh, many people did not go to work, and so now some of them may be entering the workforce again. Of course, the, the population has grown some, so yes. I, there, there are several factors, but it was interesting to see that the trend in early, uh, tend, trend in retirement, uh, and I think a lot of people who, who had had good middle-income jobs, maybe upper-middle-income jobs, had done well in the stock market when Trump was right. president.
0: Exactly. They <laughs> and, doubled or tripled their nest egg.
1: Yeah, and said, you know, I've, I've got maybe a little pension, I've got my Social Security, I'm going to step down. Plus, as an older person, I'm probably more at risk of catching COVID. So we saw that happen, and now we've got a problem. And it, we're we're sort of working through that now. There are more people going into work, and, of course, you've got a very low unemployment rate right now, but it's uh, – It's been a challenge, and that has, I think, exacerbated the inflation aspect, especially with wages, as employers have said, I'll bump up what I'm paying you in order to try to get some workers.
0: There is nothing in my skepticalness about what the Federal Reserve said about the retirements that affects the truth and the obvious, just, just outright in front of you, prima facie truth of what you wrote, that we ought to do about Social Security in this case, because... Uh, that's a problem for everybody, and I've seen it. I've seen a lot of older folks now working in jobs that it used to be college kids exclusively in, in the city in which I live because it's a big college town. So let's talk about these things. You say that that one way to get more workers in, especially for these jobs that aren't career jobs, I mean, let's – Democrats, uh, minimum wage, low wage jobs that are service jobs are not intended to be career jobs. They're how you get your foot in the door and start or how you make extra income. It's always been that way. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear your living wage stuff that somebody's never supposed. What you're saying to people is that they should never advance themselves in life. They should flip the burger at McDonald's until they're 70 years old. You're the uncompassionate people. Now, having said that, Dr. Matthews, you said there's some problems with Social Security. I have. Personal experience with this with friends. Let's talk about those because we could get a lot of people back in the workforce if government policy wasn't still set in the Depression era to to make old people not work. So explain all this. So people can take early retirement and
1: Social Security at the age of 62, and then is, for each year you wait, uh, you get about an 8% increase in what you get. And, and the idea behind that is if you die at the at the standard age, sort of the basic average age, you, whether you t- retire at 62 or you go all the way to 70, where Social Security just starts paying you, uh, you would get about the same amount of money. The problem is that if you retire at 62 up to what's considered the full retirement age, which was years ago 60. Now it's about 66 and a half. It's moving up to 67. But if you retire in that span, you have a earnings penalty imposed upon you if you you decide to go back to work. And you can only make about $24,000, I think it is, a year. And anything above that, Social Security will take away $1 of your Social Security benefits for every $2 you earn above that. And so that discourages people from trying to go back to work if they're in that time period, if they take early retirement. And they haven't reached full retirement age. Now, the problem with that, Robert, is that it, as I said, discourages people from working, and so they don't want to go back in and lose their retirement because they can't. Uh, uh, they have this penalty that's imposed upon them, and if you eliminated that penalty, I think you would see more people going or, back to work. Or now, raise so it, or raise you, it,
0: raise it considerably, raise because I think in your piece it was twenty one thousand two hundred forty. It may have changed since then, but that, I, that, no, that's, they, that's probably right. They take fifty percent, a fifty percent withholding tax on anything you earn above that limit. Well. This is a low level. This, in, in the inflationary environment, we found ourselves, you've got to readjust your thinking, people. This is working a part-time job, uh, it, whether it's being a cashier, a waiter, a checker, a um, you know, stock person working in an office. I had somebody used to help me with show prep who this was a constant problem for, uh, because the person could not make over a certain amount of money. The person was truly disabled. We're talking, you know, cannot walk, but can use a computer and, and can work, work a little bit. did not have the stamina to work a full day, but we had to always watch this stuff because they can't make too much And that when we're short of workers, What sense does this make, number one? And number two, is it really good policy for seniors? Because when they have more spending money, they actually spend it in the economy like anybody else
1: well let me let me tell you the bizarre thing about this because we've been trying to get the the government to remove this for twenty years now, and when I talk to social security people when I talk to aARP, none yeah. of them supported eliminating that and their their argument was well we don't want we're trying to discourage people from retiring early we want them to stay in longer so that they'll yeah. have a higher social security check no and so I, and they'll say, they'll hey, pump up
0: the-, the social security system they're not wor- aARP's no more worried about their members than Well, anyway, I did. Yeah, right. In other words, they want more people paying in and less coming out of Social Security because they bought into the scarcity theory stuff. But more economic activity produces more contributions to Social Security. You still get that withheld from you when you're on Social Security and you work. You're still paying in. But here's.
1: Here's the here's the bizarre thing. Back when I was talking several years ago, 78% of Social Security's own number, 78% of seniors took early retirement. And, and now it's still above 50%. And when when they so, tell me that we're trying so to discourage worked. from working
0: them, I say, you're doing a pretty dark, bad job. Right. In other words, anyway. nobody will reevaluate the policy that has not worked to, to achieve the goal that they say the policy exists for. And there's other things. There's a... Higher Medicaid premiums and uh, sure. and some other stuff taxes on on benefits on social security government taxes, social security benefits and right when, when you're and if you're making any money now some of those things might make some sense, but overall, we have a shortage of people who will work and particularly in part-time, you know, non-career type jobs. Why Why are we still except this policy came about in the in the depression, as you point out, when we were trying to push older people out of the workforce. People didn't live very long either back then compared to today. Right. Push them out of the workplace so that young, able bodied men. And it was about men could have jobs in factories. Uh, that's where this mm-hmm. stuff comes from. Uh, I don't get is this just because once again, they don't understand on the left everything's, you know, a, a fixed pie. It's all a scarcity based and they don't understand economic activity because all the retired people, and I hang around mostly with retired people. Uh, they, man, they, they spend their money when they have extra spending money. They they're not safe enough to put a kid through college. They're going out and taking cruises, taking trips, going to the local restaurant and all that. I mean, this, this is an economic dynamism that seems to be lost upon uh, the uh, people that work in the government sector, most of the people who take early
1: retirement at sixty two or, or shortly thereafter, are tend to be lower income people who are pushed out of a job and they just need the extra income. Or so. So these aren't the wealthy people. These are the ones who might very well continue working if they had the option to do it. But if they're going to be penalized on their Social Security benefits, most of them simply won't do that at the time. And so, well, that's it's, a, that describes. I have friends.
0: I have friends, very close friends, that we spend a lot of time with on both sides of this. People who are still working full time after 70 and the government made them start taking their Social Security. I have friends who made a lot of money, were retired early, uh, but still liked to work and decided they were bored out of their mind and went back to work. And then we probably hang around more often with people whose Social Security is their full income. That's it. There's not much of a nest egg. And they spend, you know, they go out to the restaurant. In fact, they go with us. We enjoy things. If, if they can earn a little bit more, um, working part time, a lot of them would be happy to do that. And I have heard firsthand, well, I can't, I gotta be careful of You know, I gotta, gotta be, be careful. I can't, can't work too much, can't bring in too much or they, they whack me. And, and, uh, I think that's just, it's just a t- any incentive to not work is a bad thing. Let's just put it that way. Well,
1: that- let let me tell you what would really drive you nuts. Now, first off, let me mention it. Once you hit full retirement age, you can work as much as you want to. You still right. get pay, you still have to pay taxes on Social Security, but right. it doesn't. uh... You're not penalized. But here's the thing: several years ago, I sat down with Republican staffers in Washington, and I po- pointed this out to them, and they said, oh, "Okay, yeah, we see that." And I said, "Can we can we get something done? Can you bring this to a vote?" "Oh, no, no, no. We don't want to put, the, put this on the floor." And I said, "Why not?" I said, "Do you if if you put this on the floor?" Will will it pass? They said, oh, yeah, nobody would vote against it. Nobody would vote against it. Everybody, You'll get 100% vote for eliminating the penalty. I said, well, why wouldn't you do it? Well, we're Republicans, and we think Democrats would likely say bad things about us that we're trying to hurt seniors. Okay, well, thought, this is the real problem.
0: That's the real problem, but there's truth in that, and that brings us to your other piece that appeared in The Hill, on, in, in Washington, folks, The Hill. It's a big publication of of that swamp in D.C., you know, the Capitol. It's a swamp, and the Capitol was built on the hill, literally the hill that that the swamp surrounded. If cutting Social Security is a scandal, then Biden did it first. This man is so senile and out of it that he pulled out the old 1980s stuff about how, you know, that used to scare my grandparents and people to death. And one of my grandmothers believed it. Republicans want to take away our Social Security. Now, if we haven't learned anything by the, you know, people just, you can't do much about that if people hadn't learned it. But he pulled that line out and said it was the, a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. He said that in the, in his uh, State of the Union yep. address. Yep. And he said, "If let me say this, if that's your dream, I'm your nightmare." And Dr. Matthews, in his great sense of humor, then wrote, "You'll get no argument from me about Biden being a nightmare, but his claims are at best strained and are certainly hypocritical." Very quickly, uh, just just for those that worry about this, you know, the hypocr- hypocrisy of these people, and and you're pointing some of it out when you were talking to the, the committee staffers and people in D.C. Biden actually voted to. Uh, I guess they would call it cut Social Security, didn't he? Sure. In, in, in 1983, they
1: passed legislation. The retirement age had been 65 for Social Security full retirement. It is now going up to 67 and will be 67 soon. That was 1983 legislation that Biden and the majority of Democrats voted for. The majority of Democrats voted to raise the retirement age.
0: Well, so, you know, folks, be careful what you hear. I know you all in this audience know that. Dr. Matthews, there's one other thing I'd like to talk to you about, and it involves illegal immigration. I've uh, taken quite a bit of your time. Do you have time to do one more quick segment on uh, this immigration and public education? For you always. All right. We'll be back in a moment on this podcast extra from Pratt on Texas. More Pratt on Texas podcast extra in a moment. Welcome back to this podcast extra from Pratt on Texas with our great friend, Dr. Merrill Matthews of the Institute for Policy Innovation in the Metroplex. His work, you hear it and see it in The Hill, Wall Street Journal, and a lot of other publications. He had an op-ed in The Hill at the last day of January when it appeared, Estimating Illegal Immigration's Cost to Public Education. Dr. Matthews, you kind of did, the, the, I guess, the smart thing when you wanted, you don't want to tune out the audience, um, so you, you mentioned why we're having to give public education to folks who are here illegally. It involves that, uh, Plyler versus Doe in 1982 in Texas, uh, where the courts made law and said, we have to pay for public education to people here illegally. I know governor Perry was for that, uh, other governors in the Republican side, a bunch of Republicans said they're for that. I think personally, that they're extraordinarily wrong. My wife, who is an immigrant here legally, thinks it's amazingly wrong. She's from Mexico. I mean, in Mexico, even if you're poor, you have to pay to go to public school. And you have to pay the fees and stuff. It's just it's just awful. Um, so you don't want to argue with that in the piece, and I understand why. Because the piece is here to point out that, look, there are real costs to the country, and particularly the states, the taxpayers, over illegal immigration. We're talking about a massive number of people, and Dr. Matthews takes the number way down. I mean, he goes the most conservative route, so the the liberal Democrats can't say, oh, that's not the real numbers, and and comes down using all their numbers for how many people in public school just in one year are in there, and what it's costing. And you say, if we use that average cost, it's about $7.6 billion in new public ed costs for just one year's worth of illegal aliens. I would like to point out to all the teachers union members, and that includes the ones in Texas, too, that don't have collective bargaining in the AFT, the TSTA, and other organizations that are teachers unions. You guys want more money all the time. Do you not understand that if we didn't go with all this left-wing stuff, there'd be a hell of a lot more money in the pot to pay you with? I just want to point that out because it's another example of how the Democrats seem to adopt policy that creates exactly the opposite of what they want, because their their policy for public ed is as much money as possible to go into the pockets of administrators and teachers, like all unions do, because that's their purpose. Uh, this is a lot of money, Dr. Matthews.
1: Right. And even though we, this is spread out over the states, it's going to be concentrated in, in a, a <laughs> yeah. small, number small number of states and a small number cities.
0: Yeah. Who do you think's paying the <laughs> yeah. most? And let's just look at this. It's not just here. We have now brought in so many people that Midwestern states that when I used to travel through them, everybody was white. I mean, you know, there weren't brown people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can drive, take one of the main streets through Chicago, which is laid out just like Lubbock. It's just as flat as Lubbock. It just has a lake next to it that makes it pretty from TV. You can take one of those streets that goes through the grid pattern that continues through all the suburbs And all the old buildings are in the name of earlier immigration groups. You see Polish names and all kinds of names like that. But every one of those is now occupied by folks from Mexico and Central America. And, you know, in other words, the new signs that aren't in the concrete are all the neighborhoods changed. That's the story of America. But the point is now, even in I, I meet a lot of people from Kansas in one of the things that I do. And even in the small towns in Kansas now where there used to be no real Tex-Mex restaurants. Every one of them has two or three now, and that's only because of the population. Now, those aren't all illegal people, but the fact of the matter is white women, suburban women who vote Democrat, you know, we heard a lot of that in the presidential elections. Uh, Do you know, you white suburban women that want to vote Democrat, do you know why your kids are in portable classrooms? You know, I never have understood that, Dr. Matthews, but apparently that's the worst thing in the world. I mean, I've, I live across from a school. I've, I've paid attention to it at the local level. Apparently that's like putting people in, in an outhouse without a cover over the hole. I've never understood it. It's just a building. It works fine. But nevertheless, the, that's who's crowding. What do you think this illegal immigration's doing? It's not Laredo. It's not Del Rio. It's not El Paso. It's every single school district in the state of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, into Louisiana, and now it's creeped all the way up into the upper Midwest. This is a big cost. Yeah, and, and, what are the trade-offs? And you know, you, you, years ago, the majority of the people
1: coming across were young men who wanted to work. Now it has increased to That's where good. it's uh, families with uh, uh, mothers with children, and these are school-age children, and those children have a have a, so, uh, according to uh, Supreme Court, have a right to get a public education at taxpayer expense.
0: What are the trade-offs that people need to be aware? Because obviously that's what you wrote, but at what cost? Okay, we have to educate them, but at what cost? Everybody says that's a great idea. Again, at what cost? The trade-offs are massive, and it seems like so many people, including the white suburban college-educated women, don't understand that the things that they that they dislike the most, that gets them the most riled up, the, the no space in the local public school and the no opportunity and everybody being in crowded big classes and all the things they gripe about as well at the same time are, are primarily caused by this. What are the, some of the trade-offs uh, for this policy? Well, I think of, it probably... It
1: it certainly affects education and and the level and the difficulty because so many of the classes have to – you've got to have somebody who is a bilingual person and being able to take many of these students who uh, have no background in English and can't speak. And so how do you address that problem with them, and do you slow down while you're trying to – uh, you know translate it's it just creates a number of issues and uh like you know i say and if you, if they're going to live here you want to have them educated but there is a cost and i'll i'll mention one more thing people will say well they're they're their' fathers and stuff. they're working and so they're paying taxes no in fact it takes a good while if you're going to work in the uh, in the open economy, you're going to have to wait for a while to get a employment author- authorization document, what they call an EAD, in order to be able to work. That can take months or years, years if they ever get one.
0: Well, and I will say this. In Texas, if you're paying rent, you're paying property taxes, whether you know it or not. It's a Texas model. We recoup a little bit more money out of this than we do others, but you have to look at the other trade offs because any examination of it, and I have family members who came here with children with special needs from Mexico, came across the border, and they're all legal and everything. The school infuriated them over and over through the entire public school process. Thankfully, their, child, their, their these older children are out of public school. Constantly, every time there was a parent meeting at school in El Paso ISD, tried to convince their mother to get on welfare and tried to convince them. I mean, it was a full-out shocking to them press to put their child in special stuff and to get themselves on welfare. And I'm telling you, this is all hand in glove. So, all right, if they're paying some taxes but not a lot, they are creating economic activity by working. You have to look at the debit side of the ledger as well, though, because there is no question, it is not bigoted, it is a statistical fact that these people are on the dole for a lot longer, in a lot more ways, uh, for a while, and that's been true. By the way, of almost when we didn't have much of a dole a long time ago, and a lot of it was private philanthropy. But it was true for those other immigrant groups, and some of those, by the way, were white people from northern and eastern Europe and everything else. This is something we've got to under, we've got to understand that there this stuff this isn't just compassionate and free. There are major trade offs to this idea. And I don't understand why the the we've allowed this court decision. Is it just so politically unpopular like Social Security? It makes you look like such a bigot that nobody will go and fight this court decision?
1: My understanding is that there's actually uh, some groups that are looking at trying to bring this up again and take it to the Supreme Court to see if there might be a change in it. But I don't know that that's happened yet.
0: Well, I just I think if you're an utter fool if you think that it's not one of the biggest magnets for for the better of the folks who are coming from all over Central America to simply say all we got to do is get across that border and I may have to hide out but at least my child's going to get a nice education. And I know a lot of Americans say that's good we want to do that. Well, but what if that nice education becomes a not very good education in the United States simply because the schools themselves are are burdened with 20 to 40 to 50% enrollment in places where they're having to cater to people who have no cultural similarities and don't speak the language. And that's exactly what's happening. Folks, if you want to learn more about uh, Dr. Merrill Matthews and read his work, and he's got one we didn't have time to talk about. Republicans don't like earmarks except when they do. <laughs> Nothing new there, Dr. Matthews. You can just go to you can just go to ipi.org. That's Institute for Policy And As always, we so appreciate your time, Dr. Matthews. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.